Welcome to Your Brain On by Salience Learning. I'm Krista Gerhard. And I'm Karen Foster. A lot of our listeners are um, actively designing, developing solutions for virtual. So virtual environments, you know, what, what, what have you found works? Or are we hitting a, a, a critical mass here of where we're all just done with the virtual environment? Um, what, what are your thoughts? I think there's a tremendous potential within the virtual environment. And I'm super fascinated. There's really great research out of... Um, Stanford's Virtual Human Interaction Laboratory, it's a primary investigator out there is Jeremy Balenson, and I think he's doing some fascinating stuff. He did one that I am kind of this study along with um, Grace on that I'm obsessed with where they wanted to talk to people about um, recycling behaviors, right? So how much disposable paper do you use? You know, uh, actually it was like using less disposable paper was the ultimate behavioral question, right? And so they talk to people about like, well, if you use this much paper, here's how many trees get cut down. And then they put half of the people into like kind of cognitive condition where they read about these trees being cut down. And they put the other half into a virtual reality condition where they were cutting down virtual trees with a virtual chainsaw. And, and so this is very much that salience of consequences, right? Like in one case, the consequences are kind of abstract. I'm just reading about it. In the other case, I'm sawing down this actual tree with a chainsaw. And when it would hit the ground, like the ground would shake and stuff. Um, they asked both groups, um, who will you use less disposable paper in the future? And that's a future projection question, right? Um, and both groups said, yes, I will use less paper in the future. So they didn't get any difference in intent between the version, which was sort of more cognitive versus the one that was much more physical, concrete. But then they would accidentally spill a glass of water while people were leaving the room. And the people who had been in the more, in the VR condition where they were doing the physical, you know, the physical task used almost 20% less paper than the people who had just been in the cognitive condition. So there, you know, and I don't, I don't want to generalize too much from a single study, but I think that's a super fascinating, you know, piece thing to look at is if experiencing the consequences of the thing can have a much bigger, you know, maybe doesn't show up when we just ask about intent, but shows up quite a lot when we actually get to behavior. To what extent should we actually trust our learners that they're able to self-evaluate and provide you valuable feedback? Not trust. That sounds probably too strong. No, no, but no. It's, it's, a, it's a real question because I, I've, I was working with a client last year and um, she was doing user testing. And one of the people she got user, for user testing was an instructional designer who then proceeded to give her their opinion about everything that had been designed. And I'm like, and she was kind of freaking out because the designer had lots of criticisms. And I was like, no, 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 that's, I mean, that's nice. And if there's something useful, they're great. But like user testing isn't about their opinion about things. User testing, like, like straight up user testing from usability and things like that is watching people use it and seeing, did they get confused in this part? Did they click on the stuff that we thought that they should click on? I mean, especially with digital resources and things like that, just watching somebody use what you're doing. And, um, and the best resource on that is actually Steve Krug's books, K-R-U-G, 
uh, Don't Make Me Think and Rocket Surgery Made Easy are really great books on how to do, how to think about usability. And, and there's a good chapter in Don't Make Me Think. And then the whole Rocket Surgery Made Easy is mostly about user testing. Um, but that's probably the single best thing that I think a lot of people could do. Um, obviously, classroom is different, but like I will ask the question of people. So if I'm doing a presentation on user testing, I will always ask the room, I'm like, how many of you have taught a live classroom thing? Um, and, you know, usually it's all people who've done that, yeah, in one, one case or another. And so most of the hands will go up. And I'm like, how many of you have not changed a single thing between the first time you taught something and the second time you taught something? And basically all the hands will go down. Everybody's like, of course, we, you tweak the workshop based on you know, like the first time you deliver it, right? And so even that form of user testing tends to get lost in digital resources. You know, we don't, um, we don't just try it out on people, see what, see how it goes and then adjust it unless you're doing that kind of, that kind of user testing. And so that's a big piece of it. Like that's a really simple way to just get some feedback in. The things that you have touched on, if I specifically think back to the industry that we work in most often, um, are really the challenges that we try to help our customers solve for on a daily basis. It's that idea of feedback, the idea of, you know, can I move the information to the point of use? We oftentimes work with um, groups of, of learners who are trained on a topic or a concept and don't have to implement that concept for six months to a year. Um, yet the organization has deemed them fit for, you know, doing their job because they've at least attended this one training six months prior. Um, and then when they get into the, the actual customer engagement, they're, they're sort of scrambling for what it is that I need to be doing at that moment in time because the training was too far from that point of use. So I think that's a really great takeaway for the individuals who, who listen to us most often around how can I use the right strategy with my learner population? How can I use that understanding of, you know, when they need to receive that information versus when they need to use that information and create the right learning solution or intervention for that and being confident to be able to talk to our stakeholders about what that means, right? So a lot of times marketing will sit there and say, I need to do this today because our, our launch is tomorrow and, and yet your customer engagement meetings aren't for another three months, but you need everything today. Okay, well, how can I further support the learner from an L&D perspective? Like these types of tips, like I would just be curious, you know, from your perspective around L&D in general, especially in when L&D is a high turnover, turnover role in certain industries, right? They're not functional instructional designers. They're individuals to your point in the beginning of the conversation. They were great. They were great at their job. They were great at managing. They were great at selling. They were great at something. And now they're responsible for coaching and educating others. So how do you help them take some of these resources and say, this is, you know, let's transfer that into real world application. Yeah. And I've been working on some different toolkits around it because I do feel like um, some of this stuff isn't that hard, but if we can just sort of focus on some key questions around things so that we're not, um, so we're not kind of forgetting the importance of stuff. So like one of the big questions I ask stakeholders is how long did it take you to get good at it? Um, and if they tell me it took two years to get good at it, then I'm like, all right, well, we're, you know, the best training in the world, I'm not taking two years and cramming it into a week. Right. So what's, what's the path over those. So let's say if we, if we do really well at training, right. Instead of you having to just kind of pick this up on your own, we might reduce that by half. 
So that means I need a plan for the next year for that person, not a plan for the first two weeks that they're on the job. So another thing that I'll sometimes do is I'll give them learning objectives and I'm tell me, you tell me whether this is a quick to learn, a medium to learn or, or slow to learn. And then they go through and they can always do it. I've never had problems with this. Sometimes you need to define terms like quick, like you can learn it in an hour, medium is a week and slow is a couple months or something like that. But they can all go boom, 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 right down the list. And then the subject matter experts are telling you, oh, this one's really slow to learn. You need to do this and this and this. And then you can have a really different conversation about what that learning experience has looked like because they're telling you that it's a slow to learn task. And so you can say, okay, well, let's look. Let's talk about what that'll look like over time. So those are just some little things that can really help change the nature of the conversation. Um, because yeah, it's, um, you know, cause the expectations that are handed to us are often not super realistic. (laughs) (laughs) So Julie, it's, it's been a true pleasure to have you on definitely a rich source of a variety of topics and and so knowledgeable on the science and, and what's going on in the forefront of research. And so we were super excited to have, we'll look forward to seeing your book, you know, uh, encourage you on that with respect to, uh, behavior change and, uh, really appreciate your time today. Well, it's been delightful and nerdy shop talk is pretty much my favorite thing. So thanks so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Your Brain On by Salience Learning. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Karen Foster. And I'm Krista Gerhard. And we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.